Good morning, everyone. This morning's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 1. It's on page 1001. It's Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. On page 1001. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Uh, good evening. <laughs> I am. Um, <laughs> I I used to be a pastor of Neving Congregations. So that was my opening line. <laughs> good morning, everyone. Good to be at church with you. I mean, it's been a long time coming, actually. So it's uh, it's even this week feels like so many events. It's great to actually be in church now. Uh, I'm going to pray for us before we reflect on God's word. So would you join me? Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you apply it to our hearts and minds this morning so that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ more, so that we might love him more and we might become more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now something strange has been happening this week, hasn't it? It's been raining. That is bizarre. Um, but even stranger, actually, is that though it's been raining, people have still been complaining. Have you noticed this? There was a fascinating article in the SMH yesterday uh, that rain actually would result in increased carbon emissions because there'd be more stock. I'll leave you to put the dots together and work out where the emissions come from. It's funny, isn't it? We find gratitude really hard to come across. In fact, I think in our culture and time, to be real, to be a real person is to be someone who's fundamentally dissatisfied, actually, with life. 
It's like you have seen some deeper truth to life which everyone else has missed. And if you're, if you're a grateful person, if you're a person filled with gratitude, who believes in good things, uh, then, then you've kind of, you're kind of living on the surface. Now, this is problematic on so many levels. First of all, it means there's just a lot of unhappy people in the world. There's a lot of unhappy people. But it's also problematic because I think it runs counter to the way that the Bible describes the real-life experience. I think it impacts the way we think about God. In our culture, there's many, most people actually believe in God. Don't believe the surveys. Most people believe in a God, some kind of powerful being. Where they probably differ from most of the people in this building this morning is what they think about that God. In fact, there's probably people in the room this morning just if stats play out themselves, and as you know, I don't know any of you well enough yet to be able to tell you that I'm talking about you, so you can feel comfortable I'm not. <laughs> but there's people in this room this morning who actually don't think God is good. I mean, you're here maybe because you affirm that God is powerful, but you don't think that God is good. Why am I saying this? Well, because as we read the passage this morning, we're looking at Mark's gospel over the next, I don't know, eight, eight, nine weeks leading to Easter. Yes, it's that close. Um, The word that strikes us, I suspect, for a lot of people, certainly, certainly certainly people who are not regular at church and some people here would be the word good that comes up in the very first verse, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Good! Why do I say that? Because I think people find it hard to believe that God is good. And certainly that God has good things to give. But the testimony of Scripture for God's people and from God's people is regularly actually that God is good. Psalm 34 verse 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good, says the psalmist. I'm just picking one from the Old Testament. And in James chapter 1 verse 17, All good things come from the Father of lights. All good things. That is, that is the scriptural testimony. And not just the testimony, uh, it, it's not like an impersonal testimony. These are people, these are God's people reflecting the experience of being God's people in the world, actually, that God is good and they have experienced it and received it. And in that context, we come to Mark's gospel, the first chapter, and the great testimony of Mark that he wants us to hear. And those who read it before us is that God has done a good thing, an extraordinarily good thing. I mean, if you remember the te- what's happening here, for those of us who are not that regular with Bible reading, is that there's been a huge gap between the end of the Old Testament and what we're reading now, the events that we're reading now. 400 years or thereabouts. People have not heard from God for 400 years. These are God's people and have not heard from Him. And suddenly this moment breaks in. And Mark says, the beginning, because I think he's kind, of, he's kind of remembering what took place in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Well, this is the new beginning, the ultimate new creation. This is like even better than Genesis 1, a whole moment of breaking in of new news. And this is good news. In fact, that word gospel, we've translated good news, but for people who, who are hearing it in, in uh, Palestine at the time, this is what they used to describe the birth of an emperor. Augustus, this is history-shaping news. This is not good news, I bought a new car. This is good news, the world has changed. The world has changed. And, 
And I guess what we, we are forced to see, or at least to confront, is the biblical claim that in Jesus Christ, a definitive moment of good news, testimony of God's goodness has come into the world. And everything the Bible has said up to that point about God being good and good things coming from God, is, is, there's a full stop here in Jesus. That is ultimately true. Now, if you're someone who doesn't believe that, I mean, you're someone who believes God is powerful, but the goodness of God is, is unnecessary or you're unconvinced of, well, I'm, I'm, I want to challenge you that that simply is not sufficient reading of the Scriptures. Actually, the Bible wants you to believe and to know and to experience the goodness of God. And Jesus Christ is the key. Now, why do people find it hard? Why do we find it hard to believe that God is good? I think we get a couple of hints at it in this passage and they're worth just reflecting on. Two reasons. The first, I think, the first is that the Scripture is asking us to believe that this good thing, the good things of God, actually only come fundamentally through one person. Uh, as we open Mark's Gospel, what is actually interesting is that the first person we meet is not, is not Jesus, it's John the Baptist. But it is very clear from even our introduction to John that he is just preparing a way for Jesus. Jesus is the key. That's why it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Mark, uh, John prepares us for Jesus. In fact, all the Old Testament, there's a lot of Old Testament allusions. You go back and you might pull out a commentary and read what they have to say about this passage. And they'll point out that throughout all the verses, there are just these little references to Old Testament prophecies, Old Testament words, and in fact, of course, it's made clear in verse 3, isn't it? It is written, and then there's this big quote from, actually, it's, it's, it's Isaiah and Malachi squashed together, but broadly speaking, Isaiah here. And the point is, what, what Mark's saying is, there is good news, God has provided good news, and he's got good, good things to say, but here's the thing, it only comes through Jesus. It only comes through Jesus and Jesus who we meet in Scripture. Not the Jesus of your own concoction. Not the Jesus of your preferences. And I think actually that's where the challenge starts to, the rubber starts to hit the road in this challenge because lots of people love Jesus. Lots of people have time for Jesus in our culture. Again, don't believe all the lies about that. People actually have time for Jesus. But it's the Jesus of their preferences. This is the great challenge of secular liberalism. Not that they don't have time for Jesus, but Jesus on their own terms. Thomas Jefferson, the, uh, the long-dead American president, famously created his own Bible. He went through and he just deleted all the references to kind of miraculous supernatural moments in Jesus' life. He wanted Jesus. He wanted Jesus the do-gooder. He wanted Jesus the moralist. He wanted Jesus the teacher, the model he just didn't want all those other things which he found more difficult to account for. But the Bible says, you, if you want the good news, it comes through Jesus as we find him. And you know what? To be honest, the secular liberal view of Jesus is not satisfying. How can, how can a Jesus who's just a better version of you actually bring you any comfort when you really need it? When you realise that your resources are exhausted, how would a better version of you be sufficient to give you comfort? It doesn't actually work. He's not actually that good. He's limited goodness, so to speak. But you know what? Let's not just say it's out there. We all have that challenge too, right, of Jesus is our, uh, on our own preferences. There are things about Jesus you love. They motivate you to do stuff. 
But let's be honest, they're motivating you to do stuff that you already want to do. What about the times when Jesus asks you to do something you don't want to do? How comfortable are we with that kind of Jesus? But you see, the challenge of Scripture is good. the good news of Jesus Christ is Jesus who we meet in His Word. All of Him, with all His complexity and all His nuance. You can't just choose Jesus who suits your preferences and say, that's how I'll take God's good news. And I think that's why some people struggle to accept that God is good, because ultimately they've, sold, they've settled for like half the story, which is not really the story at all. But more importantly, I think, they struggle because what, what this passage is alluding to is that you can't really come and accept God's good news unless you accept it and come to him on his terms, as you, you come to him the way he wants you to, to approach him. Uh, in this passage, we get two moments of preaching described. We get John the Baptist, verse 4, and we get Jesus' own little glimpse of teaching in verse 14, which, of course, we're going to hear a lot of over the coming weeks in the coming chapters. But here's the thing that seems to unite the two moments of preaching. It's this one word, repentance. Repentance. It's interesting because Mark doesn't really use that particular word again in his story of Jesus. But he starts his account of Jesus with this reference to repentance, twice actually in the space of a couple of verses. Repentance, what's he saying? He's saying, if you want the good news, if you want to know God, you come to him through repentance. The doorway to kingdom is repentance, actually. The doorway to kingdom is repentance. Now, that is where I think it gets much more difficult because, you know, I don't know about you, but certainly for me, I, I tend to see that good news is news that affirms me, that's self-affirming, right? In fact, I think um, in our therapeutic culture, self-esteem is the absolute drug of choice. Right? And actually, most, most religions are trying to feed that drug in some way to make you feel better about yourself. But it's interesting that the gospel starts, it says its doorway into the good news is repentance, actually a low view of yourself a low view of yourself. And the problem with our cultural tendency to see self-esteem as the key to solve everything is that ultimately kills gratitude as well. I saw an ad campaign run by Pantene, you know, the, the, the shampoo company. Uh, it, was, it was an ad all about not saying sorry. And they started from a pretty good premise, actually, which was that young women often tend to apologise for stuff that's not their fault. Good premise, right? And so they had all these, they had these little snippets of, of young females apologising uh, generally to males, but gen just starting their sentence with sorry, when they shouldn't have said sorry at all. It was ridiculous. Uh, but then, and then they flipped it. They showed the same scene again, and the young woman didn't say sorry, she said, excuse me, or I just would like to ask a question. A bit more assertive, fantastic. You think, great, Assert assertiveness is not a bad thing at all. But as the, as the ad went on, it actually finished with one lady saying, sorry, not sorry at all. It was interesting as assertiveness can so easily slip into selfishness. In fact, the catchphrase for the, for the campaign was, don't be sorry, shine and be strong. Who would have thought that you could turn you know, self-awareness into a hair product? But there it is. <laughs> don't be sorry, shine and be strong. Now, here's the thing. If, 
If you're a parent or you raise kids or you're involved in children's lives, you want them to have a sense of self-esteem, you want them to be assertive, but you also want them to be humble, don't you? And in those two desires, we see the real challenge of what's being pressed at here. How, how do you have a, a good sense of yourself but be able to approach God with repentance in, in a time and a place when self-esteem is the drug of our choice? It takes a significant and different type of courage to be able to approach God that way, doesn't it? It takes it hard. And you know, when, when your whole sense of self is internally driven, it's very hard to be grateful. Who are you grateful to? Yourself. And, and this, uh, this experience of gratitude, which is meant to characterize the Christian life, is something that becomes more and more foreign because you are so inwardly focused. You're so paranoid about how good you are. Are you good enough? Will you continue to be good enough? You see how suddenly what started as a good thing has hijacked the heart of what is the Christian life response. But I think the answer, the answer never runs far from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark says this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ and his point is this actually. You want gratitude, you want to know the good news, you've got to go back to Jesus. We're starting this series with uh, a title, Meet Jesus. And it's really because our conviction is simply this. The whole Christian life, the whole Christian experience comes from a deep, deep experience of Jesus Christ. Knowing him truly. Experiencing him deeply. It all comes from that. And that's actually what Mark's doing here. He's presenting to us a picture of Jesus. And we get this wonderful little moment, verses 9 to 11, uh, with the baptism of Jesus, it's very unusual actually because it has a very high view of Jesus here, a very high view of him. In fact, for a lot of the story, Mark's story of Jesus' life, this will disappear. Most of what we'll hear about Jesus is him hiding this part of his identity. In fact, any time a person or some kind of supernatural power like a demon can identify that Jesus is, is this, he tells them to be quiet. But here, for a moment, it's like the curtain is pulled back on his deeper identity. And God's, the Father says this, these extraordinary words to him. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased, verse 11. It's an extraordinary verse. There's affection, there's intimacy. But will you, do you reflect on what Father is saying? He doesn't say this about anyone else. No one else, with, no one else is the Father well pleased. But Jesus, you see, is like... He is like the long-awaited child who a parent gazes at with a glint in their eye, with deep joy and affection and pride. He is the hope of the Father. He is the longing of God. He has all the authority or the majesty or the pride or the power of God, and rightfully so because he is perfect. This is a moment, a glimpse into the absolute power of Jesus. And actually, that's a really important starting point. It's a really important starting point for finding and accepting the goodness, the greatness of God. It's here, actually, that this is who God is, perfect, pleasing, wonderful, beloved, Jesus Christ. This is your starting point for accepting the goodness of what God has presented. But here's the thing. The gospel doesn't end at verse 11. It's, verse, verses 9 to 11 doesn't capture what's happening in Jesus' ministry. Because I guess you could have stopped there. 
Mark could have said, I've got a story to tell you. He's actually the first 30 years of this kid's life. And look, it culminated in this moment when this miraculous voice said, this is my son whom I'm well pleased with. Could have culminated there, but it doesn't. In fact, actually knowing Jesus, meeting Jesus, doesn't come full circle to right at the end of this story in Mark 15 when a centurion standing at the cross says, this man was the son of God. That's the moment when what Mark is telling us becomes real for everyone else. And why is that? Well, because the glory of Jesus Christ is not just that he has this, he is this extraordinary person. It's that he's willing to give all of that up. All of that up. You know, we went to uh, Chatswood, as I said, we went a couple of times. Sunday was just an errand. But Friday, I had the kids because Emma was at work, and we went down to Chatswood. There was a lot of complaining and whinging as we walked all the way down there. Ten minutes, it was shocking. Downhill as well. Um, <laughs> the things we do to our kids. And um, we kind of walked around for a while. I said to the kids, why don't we, special treat, first Friday here, why don't we go for dumplings? We love dumplings. It's kind of a favourite when we were in Ashfield. Found it, and of course, there's Chatswood, so there's thousands of dumplings joints too. We found one that kind of was a, a franchise of one that's in Asheville. Great, settled in. I said to the kids, okay, you get to choose the type of dumpling you want. So Harriet says, uh, as you can see, very assertive, excellent. Uh, she says, I'll have pork and chive. I don't particularly like pork and chive. I like the, don't like the bits. Anyway, I said, that's fine, I'm having prawn. Are you sure you just want pork and chive? Because I'm just going to get enough prawn dumplings for me. She said, yep, this one poor heart. The parents know what's happening already. As soon as the plates come out, Dad, could I have some of your prawn dumpling, please? And of course, at that moment, you're thinking, no, no, I had the conversation. I said to you, we allocated. But of course, your, your, your parently DNA kicks in and you say, yes, here you go. I'll have a pork chive dumpling. It's because it's you, you love your child more than you love your food, isn't it? It's because you love your child more than you love your food. <laughs> no, you do, you do. You know, when we get to the gospel, what we start to see about Jesus is that he loves you more than he loves himself. That he loves you more than he loves himself. That's why you need the full circle. That's why you need the cross. That's why it takes the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for the centurion to get it. To understand that this is really good news because God loves you more than he loves himself. That is, that is so extraordinary. In a world all about self-love, we meet a God who is selfless in his love. And you see, to the extent that you believe that, to the extent that you are willing to meet Jesus Christ as you find him, not your own, you can't come up with a God like this. You can't come up with a God who is so extraordinarily good to you. But if you're willing to accept him as he comes to us in his word, clothed in his promises, then, then you, you will know why meeting Jesus is really good news. And it will change you. It will change you. It will give you the resources, you see, 
It'll give you the resources to love other people at cost to yourself, right? You won't fight that self-esteem battle anymore because God loves you more than he loves himself. And I'll tell you what will bubble up in your heart is gratitude, is thankfulness, is the thing that will be the courage you need to live the life that God has called you to. But only, only in Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Kind Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who reminds us of your heart, that you love us more than you love yourself, that you are good and kind. Father, we pray this truth would, would empower and impact us this week to honour and serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.